Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about The Monk, which is Matthew Lewis's 1796 gothic novel about a very sinful monk, sexy and horny nuns, and also Satan, who turns into a pterodactyl at the end. And that's really what happens for realsies in this book for real. It's yeah. that shit. Yeah. You, you you all can stop listening now because the Megan, Megan just told you what yeah. this thing yeah. is about. So. Be- I told you the best parts. Yeah, for sure. Yes. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, so I mean, this this is my pick, uh, <laughs> my field, as it were. Um, yeah, w- welcome to Better Red Than Dead Halloween twenty twenty two. Am I right? Uh, <laughs> am I right? <laughs> a year later. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we noted last week we all had a lot of shit happen in the last year that led to an impromptu hiatus. Um, once again, glad to be back with you, comrades. Uh, and and I, I note that delay again, only to underscore that I have been chomping at the bit to talk about this book for at least a goddamn year. <laughs> um, this is one of those books in my field that I've been hearing about forever, definitely during my PhD program, but even way back when in undergrad, uh, but I had never actually read it. And everyone who studies the Gothic promised me it is an immensely fucked up bonkers ride. And, you know, I was intrigued, but I also feel like they lied to me a little bit in that they <laughs> downplayed just how insane it's, this book is. Yeah. <laughs> crazy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, it it really is, and it often in the not you know there's some bad bad shit like bad shit and bad shit like anti-Semitism, but uh, but a lot of very metal shit too, right? I mean, um, also that's you know that's the story of a lot of British literature generally. You know, as as Megan just noted uh, and and dead serious, uh, Satan turns into a goddamn dinosaur. This happens. This is true. There's this character, Matilda, and I, what do we call her? She's not really a nun, but, but she's disguised as a monk, as she, like a monk cat or something like that. I don't. Oh, she's a, she's a novice. A novice, yes. She's a novitiate. Go. Yes, she is. Yes, novitiate. Yes, and and she basically turns out to not just be a wizard, but also Satan's dom. And I'm not making that up. <laughs> um, other based shit Matilda does. She sneaks a picture of herself painted as a very hot Virgin Mary into the monastery and this elaborate plot to seduce the eponymous monk, which of course works, you know, Um, (laughs) funniest way to make anyone horny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, give it a try. Yeah, Let us know. Make that your Tinder profile. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man. And and Lewis himself is kind of a wild historical figure is very upfront in his introduction. Like, Oh yeah, I plagiarized the shit out of all these German legends and Sturm und Drang books. uh, And and also Richard Steele. If if you're a fan of any of that, you'll love this. Um, Which, you know, I mean, I I appreciate honesty as as a way of starting a book. Bottom line, it's everything that's trashy and wonderful about the Gothic novel. And it's also a surprisingly important text in literary history. It sometimes gets called the first, quote, horror novel. Um, You know, I'll say a bit more later about how people have tried to distinguish horror from other spooky fiction in the context. Um, And and generally, I think we agree that claims about the first anything in literature are always kind of sus. But 
this definitely influenced a ton of genre fiction that followed. Apparently, there are a lot of like screen adaptations, which I have never seen, but now really want to see. Oh, I know. Right. Like, yeah. Who would fund Precisely. this? You know, like, yeah. but, um, though, I mean, if you think about it, is it all that wackier than a lot of like kind of uh, the trashier sort of like uh, horror, horror movies? I don't. I mean, uh, yes, it is. <laughs> it yeah. decidedly yeah. is. Who read this and thought, I want to see? Yeah, I know. Got to see it for myself. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, uh, you're you're not crazy if you want to draw a line from the monk to say Stephen King, I think. But you know, also it made Samuel Taylor Coleridge, aka the whiniest romantic, very mad. So you know, win. I like yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to read this for the for the for the usual. This sounds crazy reasons, um, <laughs> which is just why I read gothic novels anyway. That's why I started reading, but I kept reading it. Because it turns out that he's a big stern and drawn guy, which is also a favorite of mine in the German insane people tradition. I will pose the question, are all gothic novels simply, dear penthouse, you won't believe, (laughs) I never thought it would happen to me. But then I met a sexy nun slash distant cousin slash Italian count. And you won't believe what happens next. Yeah. And it's exactly what you think. Yep. Yep. That's just what, that's the Gothic novel. Yes. It doesn't even like arrive with its pants on, you know, it's just like swinging in the breeze. Yeah. It's yeah. It's a, uh, it is a penthouse letter. But with more murder and ghosts and Satan, I would say. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Way way more virtues and concern about them. Yes, yeah. But the lightest of concern compared to behavior. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, people are like, I shouldn't. Well, I'm gonna. Like, it's, they don't actually seem very, it's like that Mormon thing soaking, you know, it's like, just, you know, pretend that we're not doing this, but we actually are it's just liars is what those people are and i also as you know fan of of the german tradition was genuinely curious why you know matthew lewis apparently had access to early drafts of faust yeah and read them yeah yes yeah and faust is clearly just like one of the you know world classics wonderful two it's two books actually but it's one and why in the fuck matthew lewis was like i read faust i'm gonna write this novel but i think i'm gonna draw more on the castle of otranto than i am (laughs) this like good book yeah 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 well it's yes because i mean the weird like why this is such a legitimately fascinating book is 85% of it is hella trashy and stupid in a way that it revels in. Like it's not, it doesn't want you to take it seriously, but then there's other shit that is actually extremely based. Cool. I try to do intellectually interesting things, which I think probably does come from Faust um, and and, and, and source (laughs) material like that. But then, yeah, he goes mid like, Oh yeah. The castle of the Toronto. Remember when that night's home, crushes this dude. Well, I'm going to do something even stupider than that. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to (laughs) like, you know, drop a dude on the rocks and it's like, but then the bugs eat him for six days until he (laughs) finally dies. Yeah. Like on the rocks because he tricked the devil or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, I kept coming back to the castle of Otranto because it's the quote first Gothic novel. And it's so, so terrible. 
And like literary history, man, when something is taken up as the first of genre or form or however you want to call that, 400 billion stupid things just follow it. Yeah. And then like eight incredibly good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you um, brought us back to a Toronto, which, you know, for our listeners who are just joining us, you could go way back to, I think, a 2019 episode and, and find find our discussion of that book. But yeah, like because like the Castle of Toronto gets called the first Gothic English novel. But then this, which is what about 30 years later, gets called sometimes the first horror novel. And I don't know if it really makes sense to, you know, disentangle those two. But it, it's I don't know, like may, maybe we'll we'll find something that like sheds some light on why they get read in these sort of like slightly different, but also very much, the you know, a lot of clear overlaps sort of way. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know either just because of it. I don't have that much like history, yeah. historical knowledge of that. But I do know that this is very dumb in most yes. moments. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, but but like d- intentionally so, though. You know. It's, oh, I um, agree. Yeah. 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 It's it is just the garbage pale kids version of the gothics yeah. cabbage patch. Yeah. yeah. Like it's grosser. There's more slime. Is somehow there are more worms. There are <laughs> more toads. There's more mush. Yeah. You know? it's, it bleeds of other parts of the body. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's very uh, leaky and congratulations, Matthew Lewis. You sure did something here and I'm sort of glad I read it, but <laughs> I suspect a lot of these English fuckers had ergot poisoning. Well, this was in fact, not my first rodeo with the monk. I read this for oral exams. So like in a scholarly context, I decided I wanted to maybe be asked questions about this. <laughs> we all Somehow. have one or two of those that are like, come on, ask me about the crazy thing. <laughs> um, nobody took the bait on that. Um, <laughs> but I do, I'm glad to get a chance to talk about it with you two mainly because it teaches really good moral lessons i think that's an underrated part of it the main one is if you see a boob once you will become evil yeah Yeah. it doesn't have to be two boobs doesn't have to be a pair just one accidentally and if you can use words like elastic to describe it i want to qualify the moral because what I took it was, if you are like meant to see boobs, like you never say, I'm not going to see boobs, you can see as many boobs as you want. That's totally, fine. yeah. But if you like take a vow before God that you won't see boobs and you see one or even like the, the hint of you one in like a virgin mirror, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You will not be able to handle yourself. <laughs> no, it's going to be, it's going to be first the Catholics are after you, then Lucifer himself is after yeah. you, then he's after you in a, Land before time costume. I mean, reading it at this point, I think like direct eye contact is practically like <laughs> I gotta rape somebody now. Yeah. yeah, that's that's essentially the um that's the 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 way this monk moves through the world. The amount of like dinosaurism in this <laughs> is really... people are like people are like there's no way, but no, just just wait for it. You read it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like quite something. And if we're, if we're doing through lines, I really want a kind of intellectual history of how we get from here to Jurassic Park when Newman gets eaten off a porta potty. Yeah. Like, I think that there is something there. The intellectual genealogy of bad, evil dinosaur man. Yeah, yes, I think there's something to that. I also would say, like, the, the main character of this is a draw in being, like, the worst. He's, he's both extremely evil and mundanely evil. Mm-hmm. And there's a very funny scene at the end where he's signing a pact with Satan, but he's acting like he's a reluctant buyer at a Toyota dealership, <laughs> like trying to kind of like negotiate. Yeah. 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 There is also this ending reveal where it like becomes sort of like Oedipus somehow. And mm-hmm. Lucifer is like, it was me. It was all me. It was me the whole time. I'm Kaiser yeah. Soze. Yeah. You're a dumbass monk. You killed your mom. You fucked your sister. You're an incest rapist. Now birds are going to eat your eyeballs last three pages no hint of this for the first 450 no yeah no there was he's not leaving you the breadcrumbs yeah at all no there were no no crumbs no crumbs to be found so i i have to say like lucifer's evil monologue makes it seem like like at the end he's he's like telling about his plan so much that you think that somehow he's going to be like maybe thwarted even though you don't really think that because like what he's saying is like i know everything when you signed the contract with me he lucifer very very like in this very sick scene he like jams a pen into his hand and and ink just sort of like <laughs> yes. like the blood is ink or whatever yeah it's like, um, it's like yeah it's like it's like a reverse stigmata which again like stupid but also really cool. fucking metal but amazing yeah yeah yes, <laughs> like, yeah. yes. It, it rules, but like he talks in these, in these same terms, like, you know, when you sign that hell contract and uh, you thought that you could say you were going to return your least soul after you drove it off the lot, but um, God was actually going to like make you a new one or make you a little special naked baby butt angel again. I was actually reading your mind. Ha ha when there was only one set of footsteps on the beach, that's because I, my satanic claws had picked you up and flown you up over a cliff and dropped you. It's, so it's lessons again, moral lessons. Yeah. Be, be careful if you're dealing with Satan. Um, there are legitimately interesting things I think going on in a, in a lot of directions. For the first time I read this, I was more or less interested in the contractualism and the appetite and embodiment stuff. But I think that this time I was just like, yeah, nothing like it's there, but it, whether it has any meaning, I can't say, but I will say that there's a kind of contemporary resonance here because there are, there's a part where an evil nun and also a dead baby get turned into what you get turned into. If your submarine implodes, when you're visiting <laughs> the Titanic on a <laughs> pleasure trip. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just stepping on heads. I think it's it turned uh, inside out. Yeah. Yeah. Just. Yeah. Boo. Yep. So yeah, we're having fun here today. We are. So today we're talking about horror and sort of genre and the history around it. We're talking about, gender as it's presented in this book which is complicated and weird uh so weird and we're talking about sexuality and it's a kind of appetites 
Okay. Tristan, will you uh, give us a summary of the novel as best you can? <laughs> yeah. Uh, this was so fucking hard to write because there are so many different plot threads. And it's like, how much of the stupidity do I want to tell you about any of them? But I'll, you know, so I'll, I, 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 I will do my best. Okay, we begin our tale of sin and ultraviolence. Uh, well, after, again, you know, Lewis includes his helpful advertisement where he's like, oh, yeah, I plagiarized the shit out of this thing. <laughs> um, but, you know, if, if you love that stuff, uh, you, you, will, you will absolutely love this, this novel. So after we get that, we, we begin as all truly terrifying Gothic, British Gothic novels do, surrounded by Catholics and, you know, insert eek. Right there, right there, right? <laughs> um, not in Italy this time, or even in in Germany. I mean, you know, the Goths, after all, is where the term Gothic comes from. But Spain, the, the, like, the Germans are even less Catholic than the British. Yeah, yeah. Well, depends on the part of Germany you're in. Like, if you're yeah, in, no, 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 right. Yeah, it's not the yeah, Germany yeah. we know right now, but parts yeah. of Germany were very unCatholic. Oh yeah, par- parts of Germany were psychotically Protestant, and parts of Germany yeah. were psychotically yeah. Catholic. Yeah, it's, you know. But uh, but anyway, uh, but yeah, we're we're in Spain, in Madrid, and and yes, we're going to church, but don't worry, it's horny church. So, <laughs> so I, I hear here's a here, here's a nice little paragraph uh, to 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 set the scene there. Scarcely had the Abbey bell tolled for five minutes, and already was the church of the Capuchins thronged with auditors. Do not encourage the idea that the crowd was assembled either from motives of piety or thirst of information. No, not thirst of information, a different kind of thirst. <laughs> but very few were influenced by those reasons. And in a city where superstition reigns with such despotic sway as in Madrid, like say he already told you they were Catholics, to seek for true devotion would be a fruitless attempt. The audience now assembled in the Capuchin church was, was collected by various causes, but all of them were far into the ostensible motive. The women came to show themselves, the men to see the women. Mm-hmm. Some were attracted by the curiosity to hear an orator so celebrated. Some came because they had no better means of employing their time till the play began. Some from being assured that it would be impossible to find places in the church. And one half of Madrid was brought thither by expecting to meet the other half. The only persons truly anxious to hear the preacher were a few antiquated devotees and half a dozen rival orators determined to find fault with and ridicule the discourse. As to the remainder of the audience, the sermon might have been admitted altogether, certainly without their being disappointed and very probably without their perceiving the omission. <laughs> I go to church to be a hater. Yes, yeah, that's it. I go to church because I'm horny. I go to church to be a hater. I go to church because I got nothing better to do. That's it. <laughs> like, and no it like, might be an orgy in the next, in the first yeah. 30 seconds. Yes, yes. With the nu- the monks participating. Yes, oh, absolutely. Dear yeah. penthouse. <laughs> But yeah, already we're doing the classic British Gothic thing of dunking on Catholics for being creepy, but also for being either tyrants or benighted rubes, and definitely way too turt. They both do religion wrong, hence superstition, quote unquote, mandated by despotism, and they go to church for entirely the wrong reasons, namely they're horny. Um, but I mean, and I, you know, I will just say, okay, so like the, that, that narrative I just gave you, that is very class. Like the, the Gothic is a weird genre because like it is politically really all over the map. There is a lot of like radical impulses in the Gothic with its like sort of gender critiques. There's also a lot of like just reactionary British chauvinism, like, Ooh, the way they do things on the continent and Catholics are terrified. And Lewis is not a reactionary. I mean, he's, he's like, of the romantic set, he's friends with Byron and Percy Shelley. He's like at the villa where Mary Shelley writes, writes Frankenstein. 
but like he also is like but i don't know if, the, if this is what the people want this is what i'm gonna give them, you know so. i mean maybe this is not the answer to this question of like what's happening but he was 19 when he wrote this that's yes th- yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. think he listened to a lot of Marilyn Manson. Yes. No, totally. Absolutely. And totally. there's a part of me that's like, I'm going to give him a lot of rope if yeah. he was 19 fucking years old. Although Mary Shelley was a teenager when she wrote Frankenstein. So like, yeah, whatever, like that automatically like discredits what I'm saying. But I'm going to give him some room. No, I I definitely agree with that. And, uh, you know, in the context I'll get into a a bit, like there have been readings of this that one of the things it's sort of freaked out about is the violence of the French Revolution. I I mean, I like sort I I can kind of see where that's going. But like, I also think there is like the the way the anti-Catholicism manifests, it might be less that standard, like we are enlightened Britons and we don't do that. And more like what the Jacobins were saying, which is that like the fucking Catholic church is like so tied up in like absolute monarchy too. Right. So, I mean, I think like that, you know, it has a lot of like impulses that go in many different contradictory directions, but I think that actually might be one of them. It is like very critical of power institutions broadly conceived, but then it also like reproduces a lot of reactionary shit too, you know? (laughs) So one also has to wonder how much that's a product of the influences rather than what Lewis thinks about stuff. Yeah. I think, yeah. Cause it does, it does seem like he's like, I'm doing a, I, I got horny and did a cool collage. And here it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, I think you're right. And, and I, I actually don't think dude was 19 is a bad, uh, is, is, is a bad uh, uh, explanation for a lot of this. Okay, uh, so we have a few principal characters in this first chapter. We have two Randy and and hot dude Spaniards, Don Cristobal and Don Lorenzo de Medina, who are in church DTF, as as to be expected, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) They see this older woman looking for a seat, and they're about to ignore her until they notice she's accompanied by a mysterious veiled young woman who must be all kinds of beautiful because, you know, the veil, right? And and, and those, those damn mysterious but sexy Spaniards. And actually, we need to specify, Antonia is not a woman. She's a teenager, like 15, which makes all of this extra creepy and gross in ways I don't think the novel is unaware of, but is also kind of par for the course with the gothic heroine. They are invariably quite young and, like Antonia, both denied patriarchal protection and and victimized by patriarchal tyranny at at the same time. And has a kooky aunt oh yes. no her, it's her mom isn't it it's her, no, it's her aunt well she's her got aunt. she the, it, it's the aunt in this scene but she's living with her mom yeah right okay yeah. because her aunt is like the kooky aunt is also like a weird gothic figure yes yeah she's yeah. also sometimes like her governess or whatever it's like plot minor maternalish figure yeah, and and like a woman who has like a little bit more sort of like space to operate in this kind of structure. Like she's kind of matriarchy, but that like dovetails with patriarchy, but also is distant enough that she's kind of like protective, but also like ineffectual and maybe kind of threatening to all at the same time. Very, very standard, very standard stuff for this genre. She she is like the the platonic aunt, uh, like gothic novel aunt. The funniest thing is she, she's constantly misreading and surprised by everything of course <laughs> yeah and and it is like it's sort of it's sort of hilarious at the end because 
she misses her. She comes back like several days late and everyone's dead. You know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, she does. I, I don't think I mentioned that. But yeah, she like Leonid. Well, and she's she's often if she's not wrong, she's right. But too late for it to like matter at all. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. it's exactly. like this. I don't even know if you. this is such a minor character, but like late, like three quarters of the way through the novel, they introduce the servant of yes. uh, Antonia Flora. And yes. I was like, oh, old Matt Lewis here realized, oh shit, I didn't get a servant in to like <laughs> yeah. fuck up yeah. the messages. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which is exactly what happens in the Castle of Toronto. Yeah. And so I I mean there's this like great quality of Matthew Lewis where he's like, oh, I gotta get in my bits, like I gotta get in my my gothic figures. And then some of them are just like left out and then some of them pop back. I mean it's a better book than Castle of Toronto, but it's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Yeah, and so, well, okay, so this aunt we're mentioning, her name is Leonella, and, and she tells Don Cristoval and Don Lorenzo Antonio's whole, whole story, which goes, Antonio's mother, Elvira, so fucking metal, uh, <laughs> and, uh, so, and, and who is Leonella's sister, was the daughter of a cobbler, um, you know, so we, we got, a, we got a, a class ascendancy thing happening, because she elopes with this young nobleman. The nobleman's dad is furious. Elvira and her husband run off to the West Indies, where he dies of a tropical disease. Um, they also have a son who disappears. We think he's dead, but no, actually, it turns out he is the monk. Oh, we, we learn this hundreds of pages later, and very, very improbably, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Though, I mean, if you're looking for like rationality, this is the wrong genre for, for you to be swimming through. So, Elvi- so after the husband dies, and I think it's Cuba, Elvira returns to Spain with Antonia and is kind of shut up in a castle in America, which like you literally have to be at least quasi in prison in a castle if you're a gothic heroine or you're just not doing your job. <laughs> and and she so she gets a small like Elvira gets a small allowance from her father-in-law as long as she like never bothers him or contacts him. <laughs> but it turns out he died recently and the estates pass on to this other son of his, Don Raymond de la Cisternas, who has now inherited the 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 Marquisate. Going to use the British pronunciation because it's hilarious. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and and he knows nothing. Like Don Don Raymond knows nothing about Antonia's existence. So Elvira, Leonella, and Antonia have come to Madrid to ask Don Raymond to continue the inheritance. And Don Lorenzo, who is at this point very hot for Antonia, now that he knows she's also like damsel in distress, in addition to like wearing a veil and too young for him to be interested in her. He's like, oh no shit, Don Raymond and me are like super tight, bro. He's a good dude. And when he finds out that he has a secret niece, he'll be totally into it and give you lots of money. And I'm going to help you out. <laughs> so that, that this is the first chapter. There's also this comedic bit where Leonella is convinced that Di Cristobal is hot for her. Leonella, which is supposed to be so funny because old, like LMAO, am I right? You know? Okay. So that's this one big plot line of the book. The other plot line or one of the others, there are several Involves Don Lorenzo's smoking sister, Agnes, who is a sexy nun, right? We're back in the penthouse letter. Okay. And, and t- okay, so to back up, in addition to looking to bone, people have come to the, ch- the Church of the Capuchins to hear this famous monk, the, the abbot, whose name is Ambrosio, preach. 
And this is one of those moments where Leonella is sort of like right, but right for the wrong reasons and doesn't really know what she's talking about. But she is onto the fact that Ambrosio is an absolute creep. So she says it like the end of the first chapter. I do not like this same Ambrosio in the least. He has a look of severity about him that made me tremble from head to foot. Were he my confessor, I should never have the courage to avow one half of my peccadilloes, and then I should be in a rare condition. I never saw such a stern-looking mortal, and hope I shall never see such another. His description of the devil, God bless us, almost terrified me out of my wits, and when he spoke about sinners... He seemed as if he was ready to eat them. So that, that's like the appetite coming in that you <laughs> yeah. talk about, Katie. Like, and, and, I mean, she's not wrong. He sucks. Like Ambrosio is- A rare is, condition called like, horniness. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It is a rare condition called horniness. Like the appetite thing, but like, yeah, it's like, it's actually like sort of sexual appetite that she's, I mean, so like she's getting it, but she's not, she doesn't know why she's getting what's, what's wrong here. <laughs> yeah. You know, Katie's going to be so mad at me for saying this. But Loki Dimsdale energy here. Uh, okay, Dimsdale would never be so hard in <laughs> all kinds of different ways, but on the on the sinner, you know that yeah. was not Dimsdale. That Dimsdale had his big sad eyes, and he was preaching sadly about mercy. He's but he's he like, also okay. had all the horniness just sort of like in there. <laughs> It was all, it was all in there. He is, okay, I think you're, I, I, less than mad about the way you're talking about my boyfriend. Um, (laughs) Such a bad boyfriend. (laughs) Worst boyfriend. Would you like Jay Gatsby as your second husband? I mean, like. (laughs) But I do think he's like anti-Dimsdale in that like, in the Scarlet Letter. Check that out. It's good. It's sort of Hawthorne. His he he's like embarrassed. He's properly embarrassed of that having ever taken off his pants, and so mm. it's made him more compassionate. You know, so it's like an inverse. It's like he the what I'm recognizing is something Dimsdale, but like upside down. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, he's equally like it lacks moral courage, but you know. <laughs> Wait, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Are we are we saying that good Puritan minister Arthur Dimsdale? is an idolater who believes there are seven sacraments. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I mean, Katie is obviously not because she would never. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean. No, I but I don't know. Like, the, like he, there is like a Dimsdale-ness to him. But yeah, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I, I know now. I mean, now I'm furious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because sweet. Okay. Also, where's where's Chillingworth then? Where yeah. is his? Where is the evil love he deserves? Yeah, then, that's true. You I know, mean, yeah. Matilda. Yeah, Matilda Chillingworth is. Uh, oh, Chillingworth is. I. I would. I'm gonna call Chillingworth way cooler than Matilda and way more fucked up. And <laughs> holy shit, what? I mean, more fucked up, I believe. But <laughs> um, yeah, more committed to his freakish plan yeah. without supernatural assistance. <laughs> um. Okay, so yeah, th- this this really gets us to what the novel presents as as the source of the problem with Ambrosio, though, which is okay. So he was almost exclusively raised in the monastery. He's found on the doorstep as a very young child. Um, you know, we've already said this, but fun fact: at the end of the novel, the de- devil tells him he's actually Antonia's long lost brother, uh, which adds a whole la- extra layer of fucked up. He's also Elvira's son. You'll see why that's even more fucked up. But but yeah, so he's left like a two on the doorstep of this monastery and has spent his entire life there, totally shut off from the outside world. 
which in the account this novel's giving leaves him extremely open to sinning once the opportunity avails itself because his austere morality is due only to quote vanity we're told several times and living under the ironclad tyranny of the church like that that's it there is no substance to his his morality or belief beyond that and we soon get direct evidence of what a hard on he is because after the crowds have left the the capuchin's church the nuns of the convent of saint claire which is like next door to it very convenient arrive to do confession and ambrosio sees our hot nun agnes drop a letter and discovers not only was she attempting to meet a lover there she is planning to flee the convent and that she is gasp pregnant not the time for butterfingers agnes <laughs> no uh, yeah very uh, yeah very, very amateur mistake here by by agnes dro- dropping the letter right and certainly not an amateur mistake on matthew lewis's part no like oopsie letter (laughs) no yeah yeah the the oopsie letter is absolute classic of of the gothic genre so agnes begs ambrosio for mercy but he insists on turning her over to this monstrous demita slash prioress of the convent who we're kind of sure is going to murder uh, agnes and Agnes leaves Ambrosio with this extremely metal curse. Man of a hard heart, hear me, proud, stern, and cruel. You could have saved me. You could have restored me to happiness and virtue, but would not. You are the destroyer of my soul. You are my murderer. And on you fall the curse of my death and my unborn infants. Insolent in your yet unshaken virtue, you disdain the prayers of a penitent. But God will show mercy, though you show none. And where is the merit of your burst, boasted virtue? What temptations have you vanquished? Coward. You have fled from it, not opposed seduction, but the day of trial will arrive. Oh, then you will yield to impetuous passions when you feel that man is weak and born to err. When shuddering, you look back upon your crimes and solicit with terror the mercy of your God. Oh, at that fearful moment, think upon me, think upon your cruelty, think upon Agnes and despair of pardon. Like, okay, that's great. <laughs> that's, that's, that's fucking great. It yeah. does. Ro- you know what's also hilarious about that though? That never happens. No, he do- no he doesn't. He because he's very yeah. I mean he, he Ambrosio like he is a good villain. I mean he absolutely sucks in every possible way. Like there you have no sympathy for him. There is like never any <laughs> contrition that isn't like I'm sorry I got in trouble. You know so <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's sorry he got caught. Okay, if I kept going at this pace, it would take literally three days to finish the summary. So I'm going to skip a little <laughs> round to sketch out these various plot threads. Um, and we'll start with Ambrosia. You skip the you skip the spooky gypsy. So yeah, I did. Sp- I think yeah, I there's don't a even know what gypsy. to say at this point. There's a spooky gypsy who tells Antonio and Leonella's fortune. It's yeah, it, it's 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 good, but it's I, I it's too much. It's too there's much. too much of those little <laughs> moments that are like spooky for. Yeah. Like they're they're like tone setting. Yeah. Like the guy with the burning cross on his forehead. Like yes. Well, I do yeah, then, I do talk about I do talk well, about him because he's the the anti Semitic wandering Jew figure. So Yes, yes, yes. It yeah. is funny that the whoever whoever's talking to him is like, Yeah, what's up with that that burning cross on your forehead? Is that yeah. is that what is that? What's that? Extremely creepy, very anti Semitic, and uh yeah. Um yeah. I, with the gypsy thing too. I mean, that, that this is not really related, but it reminds me there are at least a dozen just abysmal poems that are scattered through this thing. And yeah. you can straight up skip them and miss nothing. 
Definitely. Yep. And I will be skipping them. So, okay. Uh, <laughs> we'll start with Ambrosio here. Well, as you can imagine, Agnes's curse is, is sort of prescient. I mean, he does get his comeuppance. They're not quite in the, as Katie said, not quite in the way that she is foretelling. Next chapter, we find Ambrosio alone with this mysterious, everything is so goddamn mysterious, young monk named Rosario. And they seem pretty into each other. Uh, you definitely see homoerotic overtones building here, particularly because R- Rosario refuses to remove his cowl. Like he won't let anyone see his face. And that's Ooh, like what's under there. <laughs> Assassin's Creed dress. It's Assassin's Creed shit. Yeah. And it's clearly gesturing toward like mask. Well, yeah, it's so here's the thing. It's like, it's oh it's because he's so pious it's like no this is gesturing toward like masquerade type shit it's like i wonder what's under his his cloak why won't he take his cloak off i bet it's super cool and hot yeah but 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 we but we don't we don't follow the homoerotic valence actually because holy shit rosario is a chick man (laughs) and and super hot we we get lots of discussions about how rock and her quote orbs are one of Lewis's favorite dis, uh, terms for for boobs. Yeah, <laughs> so it turns out Rosario is Matilda, who is just so fucking metal. I I can't. Eat. I mean, I think we all love Matilda. <laughs> like this lady. Okay, she confesses to Abrosio that she wanted him bad and in a spiritual way. And so she just had to go incognito as as a monk. Also, yes, she does look like that painting of the Virgin that Ambrosio has definitely not been masturbating furiously to because, yes, she had herself painted as a sexy Virgin Mary and that this painting smuggled into the convent to seduce him. And now that painting is really sticky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, st- you see that painting. sticky yeah. painting over there? Well, yeah. <laughs> Did I say she wanted him in a spiritual way? Yeah, I meant she wanted to bang him. Um, and and they do, <laughs> after really not that much soul searching or anguish on Ambrosio's part. And then Matilda just gets more and more punk rock. She's a sorceress because, of course, she is. At one point, she does like a full on black mass, and I shit you not, has Satan, Prince of Lies, kneeling naked at her <laughs> goddamn feet. <laughs> and I, 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 I'm going to quote this because it is an absolutely amazing scene. Ambrosio, so this is the other in the spooky cavern temple and blue fire that puts off no heat is surrounding her. Ambrosio started and expected the demon with terror. What was his surprise when the thunder ceasing to roll? A full melodious strain of music sounded in the air. At the same time, the cloud dispersed and he beheld a figure more beautiful than Fancy's pencil ever drew. It was a youth, seemingly scarce 18, the perfection of whose form and face was unrivaled. He was perfectly naked. A bright star sparkled on his forehead. Two crimson wings extended themselves from his shoulders, and his silken locks were confined by a band of many-colored fires which played round his head, formed themselves in a variety of figures, and shone with a brilliance far surpassing that of precious stones. Ambrosio gazed upon the spirit with delight and wonder, yet however beautiful the figure, he could not but remark a wildness in the demon's eyes and a mysterious melancholy impressed upon his features, betraying the fallen angel and inspiring the spectators with secret awe. The music ceased. Matilda addressed herself to the spirit. She spoke in a language unintelligible to the monk and was answered in the same. She seemed to insist upon something which the demon was unwilling to grant. He frequently darted upon Ambrosio angry glances, and at such times the friar's heart sank within him. Matilda appeared to grow incensed. She spoke in a loud and commanding tone, and her gestures declared that she was threatening him with her vengeance. Her menaces had the desired effect. The spirit sank upon his knee and with a submissive air presented her the branch of myrtle. 
No sooner had she received it than the music was again heard. A thick cloud spread itself over the apparition. The blue flames disappeared and total obscurity reigned through the cave. The abbot moved not from his place. His faculties were all bound up in pleasure, anxiety, and surprise. At length, the darkness dispersing to perceive Matilda standing near him in her religious habit with the myrtle in her hand. No traces of the incantation and the vaults were only illuminated by the faint rays of the sepulchral, sepulchral lamp. I mean, just so amazingly rad. Like, we love Matilda. <laughs> like, <you know. laughs> naked. Naked In Satan. Na- yes, naked, naked Satan. hot Satan. Yeah. Satan. Matilda Dom. <laughs> hot twink Satan. Yes, yes. And and Matilda yeah. doming him and Ambrosio just getting off on this whole fucking spectacle. The whole scene. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's like, I'm like, wait, 1796? And this was like published like under Lewis's name and people are like, oh yeah, you know, so. Oh, this sounds right. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I, and I'll say a little bit about that, but like, yeah, because I, I do think that like for, you know, modern readers who don't know that much about the 18th century, that might seem sort of wild, but you know, the, the 90s were not the Victorian period, you know, that it was a, it was a very more, more, uh, I don't know, just, uh, I mean, radical in, in some ways for sure. Okay, that's the cool stuff. This is also extremely fucked up, as I guess we have to expect of a satanic ritual, because the reason Matilda summons the Lord of Darkness, or, okay, so like maybe one of the Lord of Darkness is Satan's <laughs> uh, top minions. There's some ambiguity here around the word yeah. Lucifer, but I'm kind of inclined to believe that when we say the fallen angel, we mean the fallen angel, uh, particularly from how the novel ends. Not just one of the fallen angels. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I do, I do, like, it, it's capitalized, and I, I think it is capitalized for a reason here, right? Um, or it, it's like, it is one of the many forms that Satan can take, or something like that. But yeah, like, so the whole reason she summoned Satan is to get Ambrosio uh, magic to help him rape Antonia, like, yeah, I mean, this is going in a really fucked up place, which he does in a tomb when she's drugged. It's immensely fucked up. Um, he also kills her mother, who we learn later is also his mother, Elvira. Um, when Elvira discovers him in a previous attempt, Ambrosio ends up murdering Antonia too when she runs for help. All of this gets Matilda and Ambrosio turned over to the Inquisition. Um, more on that in a minute. And it is uh, maybe the only time in any novel I have actually been rooting for the Inquisition. <laughs> <Which> is, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but before we get to the spectacular ending where Satan turns into a d- dinosaur, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to do like 200 pages of deranged plot in, in like a paragraph. Agnes, remember her? We left her a little while ago. Okay, so she's Lorenzo's sister. That's another reason Lorenzo is at the the church in addition to swiping right or left or whatever uh, you do with 18th century Spaniard hotties. Lorenzo was never happy his sister was going to a convent. Um, Their asshole parents had kind of insisted on this, and he's there to visit her. He learns that his best buddy, Don Raymond, is, yes, Agnes's lover, and he's about to lose his shit and run him through with his sword when Raymond gives him the whole story of like how they got together. So you see, Raymond, before he inherits the Marquisate, is is doing like this grand tour thing, uh, incognito, of course, as, as you know, he, he goes as a less fancy nobleman as one does, because you can't have people know your actual identity, of course, because uh, reasons. Not unless you're naked Satan, then you want everyone to know. I yeah. thought it's because he didn't want people to think he was a fancy lad. Yeah, th- I mean that—that that is the, the sort of like pedagogical impulse of it. That like if he, if he, that, uh, and I forget, like one of his relatives is like, "Oh yes, don't let people know how much money you are, because then they won't be real with you, and you won't get to experience life or wh- whatever." But I mean, <laughs> the, the, I think that the actual reason here is that if you are in a gothic novel, 
and you let anyone know anything for real about you, you are failing. It has to be mysterious for just because that's what we do. Yeah. So there's this totally batshit seed of the woods, Katie. I, I'm sorry. I, I know you want to talk about this, Katie, but I like I literally did not have time to get into this. Oh, yeah. No. Like Raymond saves this Baroness from bandits out in the woods around Strasbourg. You know, again, the continent is very scary. Uh, he he <laughs> then visits her and her husband in Germany, where of course only bad things can happen. And you know, this is Bavaria, so Lewis isn't wrong there. <laughs> but. <laughs> but Here's where he meets Agnes, who is staying with this same noble family, they, uh, who are her relations. They fall in love, but Agnes tells him, look, I'm supposed to go to this convent. They're making me do it. Raymond figures, no problem. We'll just use the legend of the bleeding nun, uh, who is supposed to, and she, okay, the, yeah, the bleeding nun. We all know that, right? Yeah, just the bleeding nun, just what she sounds yeah. like. That'll <laughs> help us. We've all read that German yeah. short story. <laughs> Yeah, uh, apparently, and I, I guess people had, because uh, that's one of the things. He's like, oh, I plagiarized this, so, you know, it'll, it'll be good. Uh, so, yeah, we, we use the legend of the Bleeding Nun, who's supposed to haunt this castle. You'll just dress up as her, you'll shriek a little bit, everyone will be super scared and hide, and then we'll get to a lope. Well, here's the thing. The Bleeding Nun is real. In fact, she's Raymond's ancestor, Beatrice de las Cisternas, who also was made a nun against her will, eloped with an ancestor, the current baron calls herself an atheist, ends up fucking the Baron's brother, murders the Baron at his brother's instigation, gets murdered herself by the brother, and is now doomed to walk the earth forever. And I mean, really, did was she expecting a different outcome? Yeah, like, you know these people are going to tie up loose ends. And then you're <laughs> yeah. going to become the bleeding nun. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and so actually, it is the bleeding nun who is eloped with Don Raymond, not Agnes in disguise. Um, and Don Raymond ends up needing the help of the wandering Jew to exercise her. Just I, I, so I like, okay. So the way the, the way the wandering Jew is explained, it is, it's a, I think it's like a 12th century anti-Semitic legend, but like in the, not in this novel, who this figure is. And I, I'm just throwing this out there in case we like, we know anything else about this legend is that this is supposed to be like someone who is Pontius Pilate's servant who like mocks Jesus and like Jesus says, like you'll wait or like, no says like, hurry up Jesus. And Jesus says, you will wait for my return. And so now he's like given this like cursed immortality and has to like walk the earth until Jesus returns. And it's become this like, this like extreme zealot Christian, even though he's like forever marked as this, as this Jewish guy in these anti-Semitic ways. Is that, I mean, is, is that, is that what this legend is? Or are there different versions of it? I, I, I throw that out just in case any of us know more about this particular anti-Semitic trope. It, it's kind of like Bible fanfic, sort of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like a, it's just like a weird, scary. I mean, I think you have it. I think you have pretty much what my understanding of it is. But just being like, like, it's, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like a, oh God, I just want like somebody from Harry Potter, you know, like, or like Ch- yeah. Chewbacca. Like, yeah. This isn't a religious thing, it's like a spooky, spooky thing. No, I, I, yes. And, and I mean, one of the reasons I was asking just because I, I figured you, you, if any of the three of us like knew more about this particular legend, it, it, um, it would be the, the person who actually studies religion. But I, I also, it's like, this is yet again one of those like greatest hits of spooky shit, like going all the way back to like medieval anti Semitism, just so you can have everything 
in this novel, right? It, it is really like Matthew Lewis gets all the toppings at Subway, you know? Yeah, exactly. So in the meantime, right. And, and the wandering Jew is the one he's got the burning cross on his forehead. He, you know, he give him, puts the demon back, right? Um, in the meantime, poor Agnes thinks Raymond abandoned her and agrees to join the convent. By the time they finally figure out what's happened and get to the fucking part, she's a nun. And when Ambrosia rats her out, the evil prioress secretly locks Agnes in the catacombs to have her baby alone and basically keep her a prisoner there forever. Uh, the baby, of course, dies because it's born in a goddamn tomb. I mean, mm-hmm. it's you know, like re- really, really fucked up shit. There are lizards there. Well, that's true. Yeah, lots of descriptions of worms crawling all over and things like that. I mean, it. I mean, yeah, it's like this. This is this is we're we're doing like kind of gross out horror now yep. too. You know, it is that is really like we should talk about that maybe if you you know like the the actual body horror of the thing. Well, yeah, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about the horror terror distinction. I think that is actually part of it. The idea is that like horror shows you the thing, right? Like it really, really shows you the thing, and that's how it like works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so to wrap this all up, Lorenzo and Raymond are looking for Agnes for a very long time. And finally, one of the nuns decides this is too fucked up and tells them what's happening. They get some kind of arrest warrant from the Inquisition, as well as a papal bull saying Agnes isn't a nun anymore. You can tell that Lewis is a Protestant because why would there yeah. be a papal bull about this? You know, like, so. and how easy is it to get? Yeah, right. How easy is it to get? Yeah, like it's know? like getting a Very. note. It's like I got a note from the president that said I don't have to go to school today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the Madrid townspeople freak the fuck out when they learn what's happened. They destroy the convent. They murder the evil prioress and a bunch of the other nuns. This is also how Ambrosio's crimes get discovered because he's down in the catacombs with Antonia at this very moment. Agnes is actually alive and, you know, gets rescued and and, and uh, get, gets gets to marry Lorenzo. Um, uh, Loren, uh, or yeah, I'm sorry. No, she doesn't marry her brother. She marries Raymond. (laughs) Um, Wouldn't be that weird in this book. Yeah, it would not be that weird in this book. Lorenzo really is not nearly sad enough about what happened to Antonia and marries this ultra pious smoke show we're introduced to very late for exactly this purpose. Just, oh, he needs a, he needs another woman. Well, here, let's conveniently provide one. (laughs) Right. Ambrosio gets tortured by the Inquisition again. Maybe the only time I've been like, I'm fine. You know, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Matilda is like, dude, sell your fucking soul to the devil, you asshole. Like I did. That's why I'm living free and large. <laughs> he ha- this is when Katie's like, he's 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 the he's the idiot at the Toyota dealership that thinks he's gonna like get one over on the master salesman, and, and he he hems and haws. But finally does, except he makes the classic noob mistake of not carefully specifying his wish. And I'm just like, has this guy read zero genie stories? Like sure. Orientalist <laughs> fiction is literally everywhere at this historical moment. Come on, man. And, and he just asked Satan to break him out of prison before his auto de fe. And I'm sorry, I have to do it. I read auto de fe. I think history of the world part one, right? It was like, <laughs> Dork and Mata, what do you say? I just got back from the auto de fe. Auto de fe? What's an auto de fe? It's what you oughtn't to do, but you do anyway. <laughs> so, th- thank you, Mel. What Brooks. a show. Uh, cla- the classic no. movie for our Zoomers to, to watch if they haven't heard of it. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, he, yeah, he like he does not tell Satan how to break him out of prison or what he wants when he's out of prison. He and Satan does, right, takes him at his word, 
by turning into a fucking pterosaur, flying him up to the Pyrenees and dropping him on a rock to die. And he lingers for like six days. I'm not getting the end. <laughs> that is so, that, it's, it's so, so good. Funny. Like it's uh, so he gets funny. eaten by the bugs. The Eagles of the Rock tore his flesh piecemeal and dug out his eyeballs with their crooked beaks. Yeah. Yeah. Direct quotation. Yes. Yeah. 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 And we're, we're actually getting even more and more juvenile. Like a surprise. It was the, and then wolves came and ate his privates and then they pooped on him. And, and like, <laughs> it's grody. I love it. Yeah. What a, I mean, just an amazingly bad shit. Fucking terrible, but in a really cool way kind of book, you know. It's something <laughs> yeah. else. Um. Okay, awesome. Will you give us the context for it? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a lot of different things we could talk about. I'll say just a bit about Lewis's biography, which is kind of interesting. Uh, But mainly I'm going to focus on his place in the Gothic as a genre and how the monk might complicate our account of what that genre is in, in at least its OG late 18th century form. So Lewis was born in 1775, uh, which, you know, Megan already mentioned this, like the monk comes out in 1796 and he had been uh, conceiving this at least since the early 1790s. Uh, So, you know, yeah, he was a teenager and and like in his very early twenties when this is published, his father was a bureaucrat. He was uh, actually, I mean, pretty high up one. He was appointed deputy secretary of war under Lord North, who was prime minister through most of the American war of independence. Lewis's parents had a disastrous relationship. His mom ran off with a music teacher when Lewis was a small <laughs> child. So like LMAO owned on, on the older Matt Lewis. But was he a Catholic? <laughs> yeah, good question. Good. Hey, Catholic actually, music yeah, the, teacher. Maybe, maybe that. Is, well, I mean, you know, we do. I, I can't remember his name. And so I'm just making shit up now. But we, we do know a lot of music teachers of that era were Italian. And That's like what that. I'm saying. So, I'm just Uh-oh. asking questions. Oh. <laughs> So Lewis sided very much with uh, with her, um, and his his dad his dad actually cut his allowance when he found out that ma- that young Matthew was giving his mom money. And uh, Lewis himself never married. A lot of critics have speculated that he was homosexual, and I mean, who knows? Certainly plausible, um, and an interesting possibility to think about in terms of the monk's very fraught and messy sexual politics. I think, but I mean, we can't. You know, there's there's not that that is one thing people have said, right? I mean, he hung out with Byron a non-zero amount of the time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and which, yes. So he certainly hung out with the right set where that's not really going to be an issue. <laughs> you know, he was he, he himself was a member of parliament. He was a translator, as I mean, I think is pretty obvious from all of the source material. Loved German shit more than anything. And and yeah, he was a novelist and a dramatist and a pretty successful one. Like the monk was immensely popular. Which, you know, I, I said, it, maybe that will strike modern readers as somewhat surprising given how salacious and gory it is. But, you know, we're not in the Victorian period yet or even the reactionary regency. Like the 1790s were radical as fuck, uh, which, hey, is what my winter seminar is is going to be on. Hey, there you go. Yeah. Ex- yep. Try, trying out material on, on the pod. Lewis was certainly familiar with Desaad, um, who, you know, probably won't surprise anyone to know. Desaad liked the monk a lot. He was like, oh, yeah, the English can't write for shit, but this is good. <laughs> <laughs> what if I did this, but more boring? What if I did this, but more boring and like way, way more graphic in the in the in the uh, the, the, the the violent sex stuff? Yeah. 
So, and, and Lewis's popularity also owes a ton to Anne Radcliffe, uh, the qu- queen of the Gothic in the 1790s, who Lewis was 100% influenced heavily by. So in any case, he publishes The Monk anonymously in 1796, which, yeah, the anonymous thing might have something to do with all the sex and, and rape, but also it was extremely common for people to publish novels anonymously throughout the 18th century and well into the 19th. Like, remember, Jane Austen's books weren't published with her own name until after she died. So it's not it, it's not like, that. oh, like, I can't believe he signed his, didn't sign his name, right? You know, it was pretty common. So he publishes it anonymously. Reviewers are kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever, this is fine. You know, yeah, this is another one of these these gothic things <laughs> for ladies, <laughs> for horny ladies. Yeah, these these horny ladies. Yeah, it's fine. But yeah, they they, they kind of don't care that much. The public can't get enough of it. Like this thing sells like wildfire, and Lewis gets all full of himself. And so when the second edition comes out, he signs it M. G. Lewis, Esquire, Member of Parliament. What the fuck is Esquire? <laughs> like this? Is he is he a lawyer? That's a great question. No, but like <laughs> Esquire in this period, like it's one of those things you see a lot of like, quote unquote, gentlemen who aren't like really aristocrat signed. I, I, I'm surprised I don't know actually the history of that of that uh, specific term. I, I assume that it roots in some way in Squire. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, it seems. Yeah. Find out. But do a book report on our next book report of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I am. I, yeah, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to go on the OED as soon as we're offline and, and figure this out. But I, I will say that, like, seeing a lot of like 18th century shit, it's like it's something that you will see non noble sort of gentlemen sign after their name. So it's just that kind of signifier, but and also member of parliament. Right. So he signs it that way. All hell breaks loose. And I'm going to be drawing here on both my former undergrad advisor and friend of the pod, Michael Gamer, um, his romanticism in the Gothic, and Angela Wright's chapter on Radcliffe and Lewis in the Cambridge History of the Gothic. So again, the 1790s were pretty pretty radical decade. You've got the French Revolution happening, the Haitian Revolution. In Britain, you have a ton of radicals publishing stuff. Mary Wollstonecraft is writing Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Her husband, William Godwin, is publishing Caleb Williams, which we've done on the show. Just the best one of the novel great- ever. Yes. One love of the greatest, a- one of the greatest great. ACAB novels of all time. We all love it. It's <laughs> yes. definitely on my winter syllabus. You so do good. not have to be an 18th century person to love that novel. I, I like the 18th century very much, but it you don't have to. It is a page turner regardless it of is? what your century preference is. It is a page turner, and it is definitely one of the greatest and original ACAB novels ever. You can feel good about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a page turner you feel good about. It. Like, damn, this thing has good politics. By 1796, of course, reaction is also fully setting in. The execution of Louis the Sixteenth freaked the fuck out of the British ruling class, who were already pretty freaked out uh, at the fall of the Bastille. Like they they've been kind of they they've been on one for 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 quite a while at this point. Look, you can only marry your cousins so many times. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or people are coming for your head. Yes, yeah. exactly. It, that that sort of thing makes you the nervous type, I think. Also they had had those those fuckers that had a whole restoration problem. I mean it was a while ago for them, but still. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well I, I always say like the English did precisely one based thing in their political history, <laughs> which was executing their asshole king in 1649. Yep. And then they spent the next 370 years feeling bad about it. You know, <laughs> they were wrong too. It's like you got. It's like you guys were a, a full century, more than a century ahead of the French, and you're like, oh no. 
But anyway, so right. So they're freaked They're in the 17 uh, mid 1790s. There are these treason trials, which are very famous. Habeas corpus gets suspended. Uh, so we're getting more and more reactionary as the decade goes on. And by the end of the 1790s, we're also doing a global war against Napoleon, which would last the next basically two decades. Um, and even some British radicals weren't really happy about Robespierre and like the direction the Jacobins went. The Oxford introduction reads the monk is partially about the terror in Paris, which I don't know. I mean, like I said, I think you could argue that with the Madrid populace storming the convent. But I, I mean, I'm curious what you guys think. I also don't think the novel works all that hard to build any sympathy for the nuns who brutalize Agnes. Like it does say like, oh, and then the crowd was so violent. But I, I mean, it seems to me a very half-hearted way it talks about that. I, I, but I don't know. I mean, did, did you guys take a different thing from, from that scene? I just think it's trying to blaze through its plot points. Like I, yeah. it's hard for me to see its it's having any sort of allegorical material just because it's it it doesn't oddly feel like it has time for that yeah and and it's like the nuns who did bad stuff are the ones who do, you know it's like very cut and dry like it's it's quite like if you're sad that some nuns are scared for a while i don't you know but it's sort mm-hmm. of like everything works out so neatly in that scene bizarrely yeah, yeah. Well, and the other thing too, I mean, I, I, if my, my memory of this, see, I did, there's so much happens in this novel, it's hard to keep things straight. Is that like some of the nuns who weren't like directly like complicit in it do get killed, but it's it's mentioned very quickly relative to the amount of time it describes. It spends describing all of the fucked up shit that poor yeah. Agnes has had to suffer through, you know. So like. At the point of it is like, ah, the sans culottes. It doesn't really seem to invest that heavily in making that point, at least to me. No, not no, to and me like mo- most of those nuns, like they've run pell mell into the cornfields or whatever. The 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 sort of ones that weren't directly involved, and there are are I think four principal nuns who do the evil, and one is like sick in bed and gets charred with the convent, and then there's the main evil one, and that. But it's it's not like. There's not much. Yeah. No, totally. I mean, yeah, like I, I said, I just don't think it slows down enough for me to sort of like take stock of where its sort of moral agenda lies, you know, because it's like it just has to get through its horror. It has yeah. to get through its, it's a little bit cinematic in that sense. Like it just yeah. has to get through its scenes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. I think the other thing too is that like I like the claim I'm working towards is not in any way that like actually Lewis was like entirely on board with the you know the committee of public safety or anything like that. It, it's that it's like yes, Megan. Like it's not. It, it has to make its points, and it, it just like if if what this was doing was building towards this like oh, but if the mob gets too much violence, that you're too much control. Like uh, you don't want too much democracy. What it would do is some Edmund Burke asked, oh, and this poor innocent Demina, who's a beautiful woman and just terribly victimized by these evil poor people. And it, yeah. it just does not flat out do that, you know? No. Yeah, no. <laughs> no. Okay. So, but that is one way people have read it. And I mean, you know, I like, I'm sure you could make a very plausible like counterpoint to what we're, what we're saying again, by virtue of like this book has, I mean, it's politics are all over the place. Cause that's not really what it's doing. It's telling us a spooky story. Okay, so as I said early, uh, I said earlier, uh, early reviews of the monk were pretty muted. After we learn, a member of Parliament wrote it like, "Oh my God, here's Coleridge." <laughs> and this is Marsha Marsha Blackburn's very special edition of <laughs> yes, it 
<laughs> it really is like okay and like the gothic is 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 often a xenophobic genre like we've we've talked about even even in this episode uh you know one of its major features being like ah catholics are terrified but coleridge himself seems big mad that lewis was foisting the kind of trash literature that those yokelish germans need to make their literature more good or unrefined britons um so he, here's i uh, god i hate this guy <laughs> oh, good, good poet, but Jesus Christ! Here's 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 Coleridge's review. Uh, one, and once he knows that, oh, a member of Parliament wrote this. The horrible and preternatural have usually seized on the popular taste at the rise and decline of literature. Most powerful stimulants they can never be required except by the torpor of an unawakened or the languor of an exhausted appetite. I'm getting like Ross Duhat vibes here. Um, <laughs> yeah. The same phenomenon, therefore, which we hail as a favorable omen in the belles lettres of Germany, impresses a degree of gloom in the compositions of our countrymen. We trust, however, that satiety will banish what good sense should have prevented, and that wearied with fiends, incomprehensible characters, with shrieks, murders, and subterraneous dungeons, the public will learn, by the multitude of the manufacturers, with how little expense of thought or imagination this species of composition is manufactured." So Coleridge didn't actually totally hate the monk. I mean, he was a romantic. Those guys were all about the Germans, but he did think it was mega trashy, too many boobs, too much gore. And he makes clear at the end, the fact that Lewis occupies the halls of political power and should know better. And and that's a big part of why he's pissed off. So like the review ends, we have been induced to pay particular attention to this work from the unusual success, which it has experienced. It certainly possesses much real merit in addition to its meretricious attractions, nor must it be forgotten that the author is a man of rank and fortune. Yes. The author of the monk signs himself a legislator all in caps. We stare and (laughs) tremble and just like, Jesus Christ, Collars and Wordsworth were such fucking jerk offs. It's like it. Uh. Yeah, go write a poem just, about the wind. Go write a poem <laughs> about a bridge and call me the fuck later. Like I don't care. <laughs> exactly. So Michael Gamer argues that reviews like this really do kind of chase in Lewis. Um, he he gets nicknamed Monk Lewis for the rest of his life and kind of likes that. And the monk is still a big enough deal in the eighteen teens that Jane Austen makes the the odious John Thorpe a, a big fan of it in her uh, delightful satire, The Gothic Northanger Abbey, She's which we will. Such def- a- B word and I love her so <laughs> yeah. much that oh, she to- just does no, these totally. like jokes at people's expense. Yeah. She she totally she totally does. Um and, and North Anger Abbey was written kind of a little bit earlier than when it was published, but like, you know, yeah, by by the Regency, like people are still enough into this that they're gonna get like exactly what she's doing by having this one character a fan of it. But yeah, so it's still very popular, but Lewis ends up battlerizing subsequent editions and, and turns his attentions largely to the stage. Which is kind of too bad because I feel like as the German as the like Sturm und Drang sort of fairy tale stuff moves gradually into the novella, if he were engaged with that he could have written some dope shit. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, You know, like he could have really been in a cool conversation transnationally there, but yeah. So now I'm really mad at Coleridge. (laughs) Not for the first time, but still. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, I mean, if if this is like youthful endeavor, I, you know, I, 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 yeah. What, what would the elder Matthew Lewis have written? Like, you know, if he, if he had kind of stuck with this, I, I don't know. I don't know. But okay, so the last thing I'll say is just a little bit about uh, in terms of situating Lewis in the history of the Gothic, and, and that's how critics think of him in relation to Anne Radcliffe. So Angela Wright's chapter is really helpful on this, in part because it does help us to sort of like problematize that relationship. 
for a long time, critics sort of thought of, of Radcliffe and Lewis as like two poles of the Gothic. And we've talked about this before on the show, but the Radcliffian Gothic has many of the features that Lewis picks up. We got tyrannical patriarchs. We got spooky Catholics. We've got beautiful aristocratic heroines in distress. But her supernatural elements always have a, an often goofy, like rational explanation at the end. So like we put that epistemic threat back in its tidy little wig history kind of box, right? Lewis, as we've seen, there's no rational explanation at all. There's gore plenty. And the way critics have often thought about this actually goes to a distinction Radcliffe herself draws between terror, quote unquote, and in her account, the inferior horror in a piece she calls on the supernatural and poetry. And I'll just I'll wrap up with Anne Radcliffe. Isn't there also like the distinction? I don't I haven't read Udolpho, but like she has that, you know, plucky. She has the gothic heroine. Isn't that like a big distinction, too? Yeah, no, the, the heroines and right, and I don't know, like agency is a word that I don't know, like uh, undergrads will really like love, and I mean, I yeah, for good reason. But you're always like, well, can you say a little bit more about what you mean? But but I, I think kind of what you're getting at, Megan, is that Radcliffe's heroines are like more agent; they do more, right? Like they're 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 more the kind of like protagonists of the tale, in the way that like the women in this are more the kind of like objects of the of the action or something like that. Right, exactly. But I also mean that like the gothic heroine has a surprisingly long life as a figure Mm -hmm. right like there's versions of her in the detective novel oh yeah yeah well and that i think also certainly goes back to the radcliffe gothic distinction which is what the gothic heroine is there to do in a radcliffe novel is not to set off or illuminate something about supernatural events but to debunk the idea that there is something supernatural going on, period. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. It's like, those just seem like a a different version of like, those are very different approaches to the Gothic, right? Like to have her there as a figure is like very orienting for us as readers. Yes, yeah. Because we're tracking something different. I mean, this is my whole idea about like that 70s horror movies are doing that too, right? Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist are very like, these are rational agents who understand how to like look through institutions to find the solution to this problem. Yeah, I so no, I I hundred percent agree with that. I and but let me so let me just like give the Radcliffe terror horror thing, and and that's yeah. the, the, I think where you're going, Megan, is a great place to sort of like wrap up the episode with thinking about like lineages of this thing. So here's what she says in this essay called On the Supernatural and Poetry. Terror and horror are so far opposite that the first expands the soul and awakens the faculties to a high degree of life. The other contracts, freezes, and nearly annihilates them. I apprehend that neither Shakespeare nor Milton by their fictions, nor Mr. Burke by his reasoning, anywhere looked to positive horror as a source of the sublime, though they all agree that horror is, or the terror, rather, is a very high one. And where lies the great difference between horror and terror, but in the uncertainty and obscurity that accompany the first respecting the dreaded evil. So basically, like, terror suggests the scary thing that activates your imagination, and in doing so brings you up against the unknown and the Burkean sublime. Horror, on the other hand, shows you everything, leaves nothing to the imagination. And terror is often called, like, the feminine side of genre fiction, horror, the masculine. And gender binaries are always dumb, but I do think we can kind of see what Radcliffe is getting at. And so I guess my main question is, how do we think this holds up across this big ass genre? And does it shed any light on what Lewis thinks he's doing? And I'll add to that something you were saying, Megan, which is like, yeah, I don't know. Like what what in the 20th century looks like what Matt Lewis is doing? I don't (laughs) 
I don't know. I mean, in some ways I think a lot, <laughs> but in some ways I think like nothing, you know? So. Yeah. I I honestly like feel a degree of, it's just, like just knee jerk reaction on my part. That's like, this isn't the horror that we know and love. But I think part of that for me is just like, maybe I'm too medium as the message right now, but it's like once the genre becomes primarily visual and cinematic, it changes its terms entirely. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Cause you can't be like, we're not going to see it except that like, there are lots of movies where you really don't see anything scary Yeah, for a long, long time. Yeah. Or ever. Or like ever. Blair Witch, for instance, like the Blair Witch Project, you never see anything. Right, or it follows is another one of those. Yeah, um, I mean, like Hitchcock. I think I, it, if we took Radcliffe's terms, I would probably say is like more terror. Right? Oh, totally. He would be like iconically terror, as opposed to like slasher movies would be horror. Yeah, yeah. I no, I, I totally hear what you're saying. The like one thing I would say though is like. That what I'm calling the black mass scene when Matilda is like surrounded like with these like cold blue flames and we see like beautiful Satan with his dong hanging out like yeah. <laughs> like that is a very I mean in novelistic terms that is very visual or like with the worms or like crawling Agnes you know but but like but you know it you can have the most elaborate visual description you want and it's not really working the same way as like in cinematic terms it would. Well, that would that scene is also like of a very arty horror. It's like Dario Argento stuff. It's not mm. actually of the sort of slasher genre. It's yeah, it's much more of that sort of like Italian art house horror. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think one thing to kind of like I I think the way that you're referring to everything is is very helpful in illuminating this distinction. I think just like just for the listener, I think it bears repeating that the terror horror thing for Radcliffe are opposite to the way that we think about or use those words colloquially, if that makes sense. Like the terror is not the thing that there's the the pleasure is not located in horror. Right. right. It's isn't that a bit of like the show don't tell thing, too? Yes. Yeah, and- no, totally. So just to kind of sort of ask if if this is kind of what you're getting at, that like terror, like I think what Radcliffe would say is like terror hits you in the psyche, right? Like it hits you in the imagination. It's what sends shivers down your spine. Yes. Horror like turns your stomach or something like that. It's it it produces like the reaction to it is much more visceral. Mm-hmm. So, which goes back to the like the investment of this thing in like appetites and the body and things like that. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I oh yeah, visceral in like all senses. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not like horror, like a horror story, or even like really like a horror movie. It's like Heart of Darkness, the horror, the horror. Okay. I okay. I mean, as far as I understand that whole conversation that she's sort of, but not really quite having with uh, Burke about mm-hmm. the sublime. That it actually is like even beyond, even beyond the way that we can talk about media. Yeah, it, it's yeah. not absorbable in some way. 
Yeah, well, if we, it is the show don't tell thing, then like, yeah, that would almost indicate that like, I don't know if you if you told Radcliffe what a movie was, she would be like, well, <laughs> I, we we can't do anything with that. It's like your shit. Like, you, it's all about showing. You like even movies that are like hold, withholding things from you, you know. Whereas like Lewis would be like, wait, we can have the hot Satan with his dong. Like, please, <laughs> right. like, wait, like a real we could dude do full, shows up. We could, we could do full frontal. You know? you <laughs> you mean, know? Like, yeah. We absolutely uh, know who Pasolini is. We could all, we can have dongs yeah. all around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's why, but that's my struggle in terms of like translating it into a contemporary idiom is because horror has so much moved into a visual form. Yeah. Yeah. That how it's sort of received, even in a bodily sense, it's just like a different sensorium yeah am i wrong i agree with heart that. of what, darkness what? is sort of a horror movie i mean not heart of darkness the the uh, apocalypse now yeah 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 <laughs> yeah no and i mean the, the one thing um i don't know these sort of like lineage questions are always both interesting but also particularly when you sort of like uh try to make transmedia comparisons they you know you you like you always feel a little bit like you're, you know, you're straining the the term in a way that it's not really going to hold like hold anymore. But like, I mean, one thing that is really cool about this is to kind of go back to like the 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 Victor the the giant three decker Victorian novel that sits uh, in the <laughs> middle of like Stephen King going back to this. It's like, I don't know. I mean, this this is definitely trying to push some buttons. I don't oh, know that sure. it really has a lot of rationale to what buttons it wants to push but it's it's definitely very into being transgressive in in some way oh yeah absolutely well and that's uh, transmedia questions are are still interesting right like so what persists i just because i've been thinking about it a lot i'm like but i feel like the gothic heroine is really persistent yeah i agree with that yeah and the bloods the, the bleeding nun thing the there's a movie called the nun that came out like two years ago yeah, there's it's a like about a, it's coming out. I haven't seen the first one because with horror movies, somebody has to tell me it's good and then I'll see it. But I don't see them cold. But like, that's a total thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So like, fo- like imagery in this book is persistent. And I wonder if that's like kind of what I'm trying to get at, right? It's like that what inheres in this question of horror is images. No, yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm so, I, I totally buy that. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in. Sweet, we figured, we solved the horror. We did it, <laughs> we yeah. Did. And I don't honestly know we need to talk more at all about the novel's politics because I think we've made the point. It, they're all over the place. Some things yeah. are like really radical. Some things are really reactionary. It doesn't care. It just wants to scare you slash gross you out slash make you horny. It is a novel <laughs> by a child. It's a novel yep. by yes, it's not a novel by a teenager, and uh, yeah, that's 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 what. And but I like I, M- Matilda is so fucking based. Like I'm sorry, like that's so good. Like, yeah. <laughs> when I got to that black mass scene, I was just like, holy fucking shit, you know? <laughs> the, like, uh. Yeah, we love her. Are we playing a game? We're we are playing a game of sorts. We're playing a game of sorts. So. I am very tired, and part of the reason. Uh, grad school. Ta- it's always grad school, right? It's always grad school, but we've talked a lot about devils, but the world lost an angel, not recently anymore. But um, it, 
Jimmy Buffett singer, Margaritaville oh, singer. As I know. Cast- I forget. I neglected to say at the top of the show, this is our first recording in a world without James William Buffett. Yeah. Yes. And so <laughs> I'm on certainly the Kate Chopin episode, Chopin episode. Oh, yeah. Yes. And I think the Gatsby episode. Yeah. Why? Yeah. <laughs> I think he I comes think... up a more than one, not as much as William James, but <laughs> not infrequently. But Tristan and I, I think both have, um, <laughs> deep personal connections to Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> uh, Jimmy Buffett was my dad's favorite recording artist ever. And the uh, when one time he was driving in the car after a conference call and neglected to hang up the phone, what he was singing loudly to all of his colleagues accidentally was Jimmy Buffett. Um, <laughs> I, I almost wore one of his old concert tees from the 2003 Salty Piece of Land tour today to kind of honor him um, <laughs> in this audio medium here. So so you have that, right? So, And the guy from Smash Mouth. It's been a rough couple weeks for... Um, 20th century music heroes, yeah. Yeah. Sure, let's call them heroes, yeah. <laughs> Jimmy Buffett, unquestionably. Um, yes, yeah. But also, you know, school is starting back up again now in the past, so chat GPT, right? Am I right, ladies? Chat GPT. Yeah. Um, yep. So we have a choose your own adventure. It's not written by me. It, this was written by chat GPT. And we're just, <laughs> and let's see what lesson we learned by the end of this about okay. chat GPT, about devils and angels. And by that, I mean the devil and Jimmy Buffett. So here it is. Choose your own adventure, outwitting a devilish packed with Jimmy Buffett's tunes. <laughs> Are you ready? I feel like oh. I can definitely both succeed and fail at this task. Oh, yes. No. Yes. It's failing upward all the way up to heaven. Okay. So here's the beginning. <laughs> Big thanks to Chad GPT. You find yourself at a crossroads on a starlit night. In front of you stands a charming figure, the devil. With an enticing offer, limitless wealth and pa- wealth and power. But inspired by Jimmy Buffett's tunes, you've learned the value of simple pleasures and the pitfalls of unchecked ambition. Still, curiosity compels you to hear more. As the devil outlines the pact, you wonder if there's a way to outwit him using the lessons you've learned from Buffett's songs. Okay, here's <laughs> just, just, yeah, this is some Chad GPTs. <laughs> stuff here um okay so you're we're at decision point number one already <laughs> do we're you at a crossroads <laughs> yeah this is tough this is a tough one do you a agree to the devil's offer immediately lured by the promise of wealth or b recall the lyrics of margaritaville and consider that maybe there's a different way to find your own paradise <laughs> <laughs> is that what margaritaville is about uh, yeah, kind of. Wa- wasted away, got Margaritaville looking for my lost shakers. I mean, that is kind of hellish, if you think. Yeah. But you know, I, was thinking, I was like, it doesn't actually yeah. sound great. But no. no, but at the end, it comes to something more philosophical, which is some people claim that there's a woman to blame, but, but I, I know that it's, it's nobody's fault. fault. That's true. That's true. Hmm. Sorry that I am less familiar with the oeuvre. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's look as I, I, I just sorry, I. I 
I made this point on the Twitter.com that, uh, you know, uh, that, that asshole, X? that asshole, no, I do not mean X. I do not mean <laughs> X. This asshole Richard, that Hanania fash dipshit, was like, Buffett's music taught people that work was bad and that, 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 that lifetime of despair and alcoholism. And it's just like, if you do not accept what? the radical based message of Jimmy Buffett's anti-work agenda, look who you are <laughs> siding with. Okay. Yeah, but um yeah. I was, yeah, I'm gonna I I mean I have to go the Margaritaville way first, but also just because like with the, the first one I like that like like I'm I wanna like I wanna model myself on Matilda in my relations with the Dark Lord. It's like yeah. I I no I am not I, I want to figure out how to dom Satan because I didn't know you could do that. So if that's not on the table, I'm definitely picking the Margaritaville one. I mean I have to go the same direction because like like being against that agenda is just such bootlicker shit. And if yeah. there's anything I know about Jimmy Buffett, it's that he the man never wore a boot in his entire life. Hell no. We're <laughs> long had pants. We're Cow- cowboy boot only. Yeah. <laughs> cowboy boots yeah. are can be very uncomfy. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe it's just flip flops. Actually, I just think yeah. it was flip flops and deck shoes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One time he blew out his flip flop because he stepped on a pop. No, I'm not going to do that. Okay, so you're going to recall the lyrics to Margaritaville. So I'm taking us to situation B1. Okay, so you tell the devil about your version of paradise, a place filled with laughter, music, and a cheeseburger in paradise. Intrigued, he challenges you to create this paradise in a week. Here's your decision point. Do you a frantically try to create the paradise by yourself or b remember the lessons of fins and gather a community to help fins is a song about fins is actually a song about a woman who is like relentlessly hounded by by the sailors that come into the bar where she works oh god i know the chat gpt understood what fins was yeah (laughs) I my I uh I have like Finn, Finn's is not one of the ones that I put on repeat, but I will say at a Jimmy Buffett concert, which I have been to more than one, um, this is this is the song where the audience makes the the fins above their head and like yeah. goes to the left or right. So it's a very left audience participation right. song, which I mean I like I appreciate that about it. So I'll I'll, I'll go with that. It's fun. It's fun. I have to <laughs> okay. go with that out of like pure ignorance. I'm just feeling so. A wash in a sea of like my my overeducated liberal parentage that I can't like I have I have no point of reference. Yeah, so, so right right now Megan feels like she's got fins to the left and fins to the right and she's the only bait in town. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I also she she's definitely aboard uh, my, my my ship here as we are as we are navigating the. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have to trust the skipper. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. I have charted these waters. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're going to situation. Let's see where we're going. We're going to situation B3 now. Let's find it here. Did they give me one of those? Because I'm actually, they, they, they may have just sent me to a situation that doesn't exist. (laughs) <laughs> on a boat yeah they they literally sent me to a situation that didn't exist thank See, kids, you so much here here is your lesson don't fucking use chat gbt <laughs> yeah seriously 
It seems um, that we've come to problems fairly early with ChatGPT. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So this is this is an important lesson. Hilarious. I have to find something that makes sense. Um, or just don't. It's ChatGPT. You know. <laughs> yeah. Or just don't. Right. Okay. So what if you pretend that you didn't do that? Okay. Um, pretend. <laughs> pretend. <laughs> pretend that you. Um, that you. Uh, that you decided to. Do it, go it alone. You you decided you didn't want fins to either side, but you were trying to create your cheeseburger in paradise alone. Um, but then you wind up in this situation where trying to create paradise alone proves too challenging. On the brink of failure, you hear volcano and realize that sometimes you need to go with the flow. Also, absolutely not the moral of that song either. Um, but we've made it to the next decision point. So do you A, let go of perfection, improvising a makeshift beach party, or B, play he went to Paris, hoping the devil might change his mind? Beach party. Okay, beach party. Um, What happened to my cheeseburger? It's you in paradise, in paradise now. Yeah. <laughs> Can I have another one, please? Yeah, yeah. heaven on earth is an onion slice. Do you, yeah, do you, do, you, do, you, do you like yours with lettuce and tomato, Heinz 57 and French fried potato? No, I don't need Big fucking kosher pickle and a cold draft my... beer. <laughs> I like it's everything. Not almighty, which way do you steer? <laughs> I like everything both of you have said, except for I don't put ketchup on a fucking cheeseburger. <laughs> what? No. An aristocrat. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> there you go. We were, we're in the presence of such. Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, are you comfortable with the makeshift beach party? Yes. Um, I feel like I could have a cheeseburger for there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Here we go. Yes, you absolutely can. Ready? The beach party with cheeseburger in paradise's anthem becomes the talk of the town. The devil, seeing genuine joy, rethinks the pact. And now you've reached the ending. Your paradise isn't about perfection, but authenticity. The devil departs, leaving behind not a chest, but memories of a day filled with laughter and song. Hell yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I just I you know I like I haven't had a ton of anxiety about ChatGPT because like almost everything that comes out of Silicon Valley it's oversold it's fucking bullshit I know it's bullshit my main fear of it has been the way that bosses are going to use the narrative of what it is as a way of disciplining labor rather than what it can actually do but I will say having gone through this I'm just I'm just further it's like kids. Do not you will fucking fail shit if you use this, you know? Like. Yeah, this is I mean, I thought that my quizzes were insufferable, but <laughs> now we've really gotten now we've really, this is this is how you know ChatGPT is stupid. I'm gonna read you another ending. The devil experiencing sunsets, beach parties, and boat drinks, a great Jimmy Buffett song, it realizes is, yeah. that true wealth lies in moments. The pact is forgotten and as he dives into his own adventure with Margaritaville as his anthem. Uh, okay. No. Note, each decision and ending incorporates Jimmy Buffett's philosophy, emphasizing life's simple pleasures, the value of shared experiences, and the transformative power of stories and songs. I think the transformative power of alcohol is what you're looking for. Yeah. ChatGPT yeah. is a prude. That's the other yeah. thing. Yeah, ChatGPT is a prude, but also it's like it just very clearly read like one of the fucking like Buffett's greatest hits album descriptions, yeah. you know? Like, yes. anyway. it, oh, it totally it doesn't it knows nothing like it 
it <laughs> there's this was actually a quite a good one. Jesus Christ, what is it? Oh yeah. Um there's a song, Jimmy Buffett song, Why Don't We Get Drunk? It's Why Don't We Get Drunk and Screw. Mm. Um and the situation is um why don't we get drunk reminds you that sometimes whimsy and company are the answers. <laughs> yeah, I, I really think it's the getting drunk and screwing part. Though. Yeah. The uh. sea brings peace, but solitude weighs on you. Is, <laughs> like, it, is yeah. it really worth yeah. interpreting beyond just the words? Yeah, <laughs> wow. The words tell you what you need to know. They do the tight the title. In fact, (laughs) (laughs) you get what you came for. Um, Thank you. I learned a lot about myself from (laughs) ChatGPT. Yeah, and it's infidelity to Jimmy Buffett. Um, So this has been better than dead. You can find me on Twitter at Telsosaurus. You can find Tristan at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie at Katie Crywo, and we use the same handles on Blusky. And you can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at Better Red Pod. Email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com, but only with Jimmy Buffett reminiscences. Please, we'd like more. (laughs) Our intro music is Love Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. As ever, rate, review, subscribe nice things next up we have we're we're taking quite a detour with samuel delaney's babel 17 and edith wharton's the house of mirth on deck after that so thanks comrades (laughs) 